Father, it's so easy to come in here and uh, participate in the songs. And it's so easy to turn and say hello to individuals and put a smile on our face. And it's, it's very easy to listen to a teaching. But what's not so easy, Father, is to be able to shut the things out of our minds that consumed us this last week and the things that are yet to happen in the week ahead of us, which we can't even control. Things that have yet to unfold, you know what's going to happen, but we don't. So Father, in the midst of this moment, right now, we ask that you would help us to be fully present, that our minds would be focused in on you, that the songs have prepared our hearts, and this time spent in prayer will cause your Spirit to move through us, bringing us to that place where we're in tune with what you want us to hear. Not just for us as a church, Father, corporately, but for each individual in this room. I pray for every man and every woman, every student, every child. God, that you would cause us to hear what you want us to hear out of this text. Let it impact us personally. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you sit here this morning, how big is your to-do list for the week ahead of you? Like huge? Mine is megas. Really big. All the things that I want to get done. All the things that I intend to do. There, there's so much that I start each day out with thinking I'm going to get done. And then I get to the end of the day and realize, wow, maybe 10% of it. It's very easy, especially at this time of year, to come in with a huge to-do list. So I'll tell you what my prayer has been over the last couple weeks. Um, Every day I've been starting out with this request of God. God, interrupt me where you need to. Just put my day out there because my to-do list doesn't like to be interrupted. Okay, I bet yours is the same way. I really don't like to be taken off agenda, but it happens all the time. And so in the midst of it, I'm going to be looking for God's activity if I'm saying, God, you interrupt me where you need to. Even though I might be on a track and I've got a plan and I want to unveil some things that I want to get done, God will occasionally catch me by surprise. What we've been learning over the last couple of weeks is that God is never surprised. We looked at it in the life of Mary two weeks ago. We looked at it in the life of Joseph last week. Our God has eternal purposes. His plans go from before the foundation of the world, we're told. His purposes are eternal, past and future. You can reemphasize this on the screen again with you from last week, Ephesians 3.11. This was in accordance with the eternal purposes, meaning bringing Jesus. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God has these eternal purposes to carry out His plans, His activities right in the midst of your life, even when you think you've got a to-do list that can't be interrupted. And so what Scripture tells us is that we have to interrupt our plans to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. That's what Scripture talks about. Romans, we looked at that last week, Romans 8. We've got to adjust our plans and our purposes in order to conform to God's plans and purposes. So here's where we left off last week. I left you with this question. What effect has the arrival of this day on you? If you were here last week, you heard me say that that came from a theologian from the early 1800s, Charles Simeon. I saw that question and it really struck me because in the midst of my praying, God, will you interrupt my day where you need to, I read this question that Charles put out there. 
What effect has the arrival of this day on you? At the end of the day, will you be able to look back and say, yeah, I responded to God's activity in my life today. I saw where He was operating and I engaged with Him. So as we step into these texts of studying the life of Mary and Joseph and this morning, Simeon, we have to approach the text and ask God, what do you want us to know out of this text? Because everything that God does is for a purpose, right? Participatory. Everything God does is for a purpose, right? Absolutely. And so if everything God does is for a purpose and He gave us His Word, He laid it out in Scripture, it must be for a benefit to my life. That's what Scripture says. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 10.11 Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. So God does everything for a purpose, written for your instruction. There must be a lot that we're going to be able to learn from what's going on in this text. So I'm going to ask myself as I approach this, if I'm going to have a heart like Simeon, if I'm going to be able to be interrupted in the midst of my schedule and respond to God's activity, what are the things that I need to learn to do? How can Simeon help me learn that? What's required to have a heart tuned in to God's frequency. You're going to see two characteristics that are really going to pop out through this text this morning. One is watching, always on the lookout for God's activity. And the second one is to be responsive. And I know it sounds simple, but it's not. And I'll show you why. Let's move forward. I invite you, if you have your Bibles this morning, to, learn, uh, to turn, <laughs> turn to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to be in verse 21. You'll be able to follow along on the screen as well. And if you don't have a Bible with you, they're in the pew racks there in front of you. You can follow along that way. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21 starts out this way. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, speaking of Jesus, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now it's talking about eight days. What's going on there? A baby was not named at this time on the day that they were born. They were named on the eighth day at the point of circumcision in the case of a male child. So here's what a couple had to do. A young mom and a young dad had to take their son to the local synagogue, which for this couple, in this case, would have been Bethlehem. They would go to the small synagogue because it was a small village, and they would find the priest and say, we're, we're ready to name the child. And he would be ready to perform the circumcision. But at that point, just before the procedure would be carried out, the the priest would turn to the father and say, what's the name of this child? Now in Joseph's case, he would say, Yahashua. We will call him Yahashua. Now they had been told that name by the angel. The angel said, you're going to name him Jesus. That's the way we pronounce it in the English language. See, at this time, just like today, parents had the privilege of naming their children But in this case, God said, this is what his name's going to be. And I want to help you construct in your mind, especially with this week that's ahead of you, how the name Jesus came to be and why the angels said to Mary and Joseph, this will be the name, Yahashua. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. You may have individuals approach you like I had an individual talk to me about this back in ministry many years ago who asked this question. Why did they name Jesus Christ a swear word? Let that settle in for a moment. 
To people in church, that would be shocking. To a child with no church background whatsoever, it's logical. So this child from an underprivileged family said, why did they name Jesus Christ a swear word? That was their only frame of reference. So as you encounter individuals, maybe as you give out that invitation card this week, maybe you engage in conversations about Jesus, you can speak with some degree of authority about this subject. Let me show you why. I want to help you understand where Jesus came from. When you think of Moses standing on Mount Sinai and talking to God and saying, God, what is your name? Who should I tell the people that you are? God's response, I am that I am. In the Hebrew translation, best we know, it was Yahovah. And then translated further down because they removed all the vowels, Y-H-W-H, because the Hebrews, the ancients, would not pronounce the name of God. They believed it to be too sacred. But best we can tell from our translations today, it would have been Yahweh or Yahweh. So that translation as it's put together means the eternal name of God. But the second component is this. God's ability to save is caught up in the word Shua, meaning deliverer or the one who can bring salvation. So I put that in point number three of your notes this morning. If you have that in there, you'll see that construct, the way that's put together. Y-H-W-H with Shua, Yahovah Shua, Yahashua. That's the Hebrew name, Joshua. So we still use that name today. And it means God, deliver, Yahashua, translated into the Greek language is Iesus. English language is Jesus. So when you're saying the name Jesus, you're saying the ancient Hebrew name, Yahashua. Every time you pronounce the name Jesus, you're saying God saves. That's why the angels gave this name specifically to Mary and Joseph. They wanted everybody to be reminded, when you say that name, you're saying God saves. So, I put this on the PowerPoint so you can see it this morning, how this construct fits together. Jesus is his earthly name. Okay? That's the name that we know him, his human name. Christ is his official title. Christ is the word Mashiach in Hebrew, meaning Messiah, the one who's come to save. So, Jesus Christ And Emmanuel describes who he is, his nature, his character, meaning God with us. So when you say Jesus Christ or Emmanuel, you're speaking of the nature and the characteristic of God. So we know the angels called him, and still do today, the Son of God. When Gabriel shows up, he says he will be the Son of the Most High. When the demon confronts Jesus in Mark chapter 6, he calls him Son of the Most High God. So the angels call him Son of God. We call him Yahashua. Okay? That doesn't have a whole lot to do with the text this morning. It's just kind of for free, so you know about that, all right? So let's move forward into verse 22 so you understand the naming of the child. Here goes verse 22, and they're carrying out the custom. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
Now, when it's speaking of its, her purification, what we're talking about here is that a woman, when she gave birth to a child, a male in this case, she was considered unclean for 40 days. And in the midst of those 40 days, she couldn't go out in public. Except on the eighth day during the circumcision of the male child, she would go to the synagogue with her husband. But other than that, she had to remain secluded from public. But on the 40th day, there was a responsibility for this couple to come to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, in Mary and Joseph's case, we're only talking six miles. Bethlehem to Jerusalem, not a long journey. But for most Israelite couples, they had to travel from all over Israel to come to Jerusalem to present their child before God. To the ancients, there's no place on earth holier than Jerusalem. And let me help you to see why. If you look closely at the text in verse 22, it says they brought him up to Jerusalem. But if you look geographically and at a topographical map, you'll see that Bethlehem is actually at a higher altitude than Jerusalem. Why would Luke write they have to go up to Jerusalem? Because the ancients never thought of going to Jerusalem. They always thought of ascending to Jerusalem. It was a spiritual journey for them. And as they arrived at Jerusalem, they would find themselves in front of the temple, which was higher yet, up on a mound. So these individuals, when they come into Jerusalem, they're on a holy journey. And the woman typically would wear pure white clothing. And as they approached the steps of the temple, they would find that they were very, very high steps. Think of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., Many steps, one after the other, to get up to the actual Lincoln Monument. So as Mary and Joseph, Mary probably dressed in pure white, carrying the baby in her arms, coming for her purification offering, and to present the child, here's what they do. They step up on a step, and at that point, they begin reciting the Psalms of David. If you've ever read the book of Psalms, and you see some that say, a psalm of ascent, They're ascending up the steps. And each song, as they would begin to recite it in the book of Psalms, they would feel their heart growing gladder and gladder. Not sure if that's an appropriate English word, but they're getting happier and happier because they're getting closer and they're ascending towards the temple. So they've ascended up to Jerusalem. Now they're ascending up to the temple, growing closer and closer to God to present their firstborn. Now what's going on there? Well, particularly in God's Word in the Old Testament, if they lived under the law, they had to buy back their firstborn son because God said, every firstborn son belongs to me, but you can buy him back. That's not because God needed the money. It was so God could remind them that these children were precious to him. So what you see going on here is a presentation of the firstborn. Let me show you an example of that in Numbers 18. You'll see it on the screen. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. As to the redemption price from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver. Five shekels in silver is a weight. So $100 in pure silver had to be presented at the temple for a firstborn to bring back the firstborn under the care of the parents. This was a custom and a tradition for them. So you've got them coming into the temple, ascending the steps, dressed in pure white, and they're presenting their child. Now, we're not talking of them going to the temple, remember. They're ascending to the temple, climbing up the steps. And verse 24 says there's a second component, 
and to offer. To offer what? A pair of turtle doves. Now that's odd because in the Old Testament, it was expected that a young woman and a young man would present a yearling lamb as the offering of purification. But there was a clause. If you're extremely poor, you could use two turtle doves. And so we see Jesus born into a very poor family. They're offering two turtle doves. They couldn't offer a yearling lamb. They couldn't afford it. Now, in this case, a woman could watch the ritual from at the gate, but she couldn't go inside the temple until the offering took place. So where we step into this story now, obviously the offering has already taken place because when Simeon meets up with them, they're inside the temple. Go with me to verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem who was, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He's looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's a really interesting dynamic going on here because we know that Herod, the king, is opposing Jesus. Herod is in his palace. The temple and the palace are right next door to each other. So this one that Herod's going to be on the hunt for is literally in arm's reach away. Jesus the king is being brought right into the temple. And the priests are ignoring him. The priests are capable of reciting scripture and pointing people to the Messiah, but they don't even bother to go see him even though he was in Bethlehem five miles away. What's going on there? Well, they won't be interrupted. They don't even know that God's activity is going on. They're totally unaware that in the midst of this day, God is going to do something right in the temple underneath their noses because they're not tuned in to God's activity. So we learn that there's a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Now, Simeon's mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. This is the only place you're going to find it. Extra-biblical sources, historians who wrote about this individual, said that Simeon was around 113 years old when he died. Can't know if I can back that up for you, but that's what's written in some of the historical accounts. So obviously we've got an aged individual, and we're told that this man is righteous and he's devout. Well, we know what it means to be righteous, someone who's living a godly lifestyle. But this word devout, what's going on there? Well, I want you to see the definition for this because it has a very specific meaning. To be devout is eublace. And when you look at the definition, it doesn't really jump out at you, but it says to take hold well, carefully. It refers to someone who's very careful about the things of God. I'll put it in context for you. When we celebrate communion here, we participate in the Lord's Supper. We have the tables set up in the front and in the back and in the balcony. And I will typically say to the congregation, before you participate in this, you must examine yourselves that's you, Blaise, someone who's taking the things of God seriously. So you find this individual who's devout. He's holding well onto the things of God, and he's got this intense desire for the promised one. We're understanding that unlike the political leaders or the religious leaders, he's waiting, he's tuned into God, and he's looking for the consolation of Israel. There's a general awareness at this time that the Messiah's arrival is not far away. Everybody who's done the calculations from the book of Daniel forward understand that they're coming into a point when there's the consummation of the ages taking place. And so they're watching and they're looking for the arrival of this Messiah. And we're told that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. If you've done any research at all in the New Testament, maybe you've been in church a long time, you're familiar that the association of the word Holy Spirit in the Greek language is 
the word paraclete. I want you to see the word that's used here for consolation. Paraclesis. Same word as paraclete. To call alongside. Now it was always used in the context of hiring a lawyer. To bring a lawyer alongside you to help you put your defense together. So what we find here is this Simeon, this righteous and devout man who's outside the temple at this point, is looking for the paraclesis, the one that's going to come alongside them. This was a very common prayer at this time. God, may I live long enough to see the consolation of Israel. And in Simeon's case, we're told that the Holy Spirit is upon him Not coming and going. He's got the Holy Spirit upon him. And the Spirit of God is going to reveal something to him. Go with me to verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now those same historians that write about Simeon say that he was really troubled and puzzled by one thing. He spent much of his adult life trying to figure out Isaiah 7.14 that speaks about a virgin with child. It's an Old Testament prophecy. Yet we find Simeon was puzzled by that prophecy, trying to put the pieces together. How could a virgin be with child? But yet the Holy Spirit is revealing something to him. Now, I want to teach you one more Greek word, probably the last one for today, but this one I want you to learn with me. Um, because it's, it's kind of a fun word to say, actually. It's the word krematizo, and it's the word that's used with this word revealed. So when we're told that it had been revealed to him, you would insert the word krematizo there. And I'll tell you why after I teach it to you. So let's say this word together on three. One, two, three. Krematizo. My wife and I are driving home last night, and she said, what was that word that you taught us? That it was like cream of wheat or something like that. <laughs> It's not cream of wheat, crematizo, and here's what it means, because it's kind of a fun word to say. It, the word revealed is explaining here something that God did, and it has yet to be revealed, okay? God did it, but the revelation remains to be seen. So in the case of Simeon, it had been crematizo to him. God's already done something and accomplished it. But he gets to see it. It has not yet been revealed to him. So what we see there in verse 26 is that he came into the temple with this knowledge in his mind. And I want you to notice, he wasn't already in the temple. And here's why that's significant. He's not hanging out in church every day looking for God's activity. He wasn't already there. He's somewhere out in Jerusalem. He's not hanging out in the temple watching for this. He's out in the streets doing his business. Whatever he does for a living, whatever he does during the course of the day, and that's when God interrupts him and makes it clear, Simeon, stop what you're doing. He's here. It's time. It's time, Simeon. Go to the temple. However he heard it, he's outside the temple and now he's being told to go there. He's willing to let his day be interrupted. So verse 27 picks it up right from there. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, see they're following the law, the Old Testament law, verse 28, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. 
This is an incredibly touching scene. And once again, we get to see that Mary and Joseph are playing a role in God's eternal plan. They're all part of God's eternal timing being worked out in their lives. And at this moment, when the Spirit brings the child into, or brings Simeon into the court and he sees the child, I cannot get this image out of my mind. God being carried into his own temple. That one just totally messes me up. I'm looking at that and thinking, how does that work? God's being carried into his own child. He's a baby. But, and, and in the midst of this, they're carrying out the custom of the law. They're going through the procedures. They're doing the rite of redemption of the firstborn. And at that moment, Simeon sees the child and scoops him up into his arms and doesn't begin praising Mary. He's not praising Joseph. Who's he praising? Praising God for what God has done. You need to hear this, church. There are critical moments in your life when everything hinges on your immediate submission to the impulse of the Spirit. If Simeon had not yielded whatever he was doing and heard God's voice and responded, left what he was doing and going to the temple, he would have totally missed it. The opportunity to praise God, to bless God, we're told, but there's something else going on here. He's not just scooping him up in his arms and praising God for fulfilling his promise, but there's something deep within his praise, and it has great significance to you. Mary and Joseph knew part of the plan. The shepherds knew part of the plan. Zacharias and Elizabeth knew part of the plan, but they'd never put all the pieces together. We know that God does everything for a purpose, right? Right? Absolutely, yes, God does everything for a purpose. And so if God does everything for a purpose, we have to look at this and say, what's the purpose here? Not just so that an elderly man could come into the temple and scoop this child up. What's the reason that God revealed this information to him? There's a weight resting upon the shoulders of Simeon. And it's a holy weight. What did God reveal to Simeon? Because he can't obviously let this settle in his mind. Here's what he's revealing to him. That Jesus' arrival on the planet is not just for the Jewish people. Even though they believed they were the chosen people, rightly so because of what God indicated in the Old Testament but that Jesus' arrival was for the entire planet, everyone on the globe called earth. And God is revealing this to Simeon so that he can speak it. So I'm going to show you that in just a minute because in my mind's eye, here's what I'm seeing. This elderly man coming into the temple at the same time Mary and Joseph enter into the temple. And he's looking around for what? Is he looking for a man well-dressed with long, shiny robes? Is he looking for a rabbi? How does he know to look for a teenage girl with a poor carpenter husband and a baby that's a month old? How does he possibly know that? We don't know, but we know that he scoops up the child and this is what he says, verse 29, and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
See, God has been preparing for this moment for a long time, and Simeon knew it. Verse 31 says, you've prepared this, and it's done in the presence of all the peoples. And there's this beautiful hymn that comes out of this. And you have to look at this and say, how did Luke know this? How did Luke know to write down verse 30 and 31 and 32? Because it's just Mary and Joseph and Simeon. What's going on there? Well, if you go back later today to Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, you'll see that Luke sat down to write a detailed account of everything surrounding the life of Jesus. And most theologians believe that Luke went and found Mary as an aged woman and had her recount to him the things that she had pondered and treasured up in her heart about the things that were recorded from this period of time. Because now we have this record word for word of this hymn that this aged man said in the midst of the temple, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And according to your word, he's referring in verse 29 back to verse 26 when you learned that word krematizo. He's saying in verse 29, according to your word, the krematizo, the things that have been revealed, I can speak now of these profound insights. You understand that what he's doing here is he's talking about his own generation and your generation. He's speaking of the times present in first century A.D., but he's speaking of the future as well and how God's going to work out his plans. So he's saying it's going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He sees this going out to the entire world. Who's the Gentiles? You are. I am. We're not Jewish, or some of you might be partly Jewish, but we're not part of the Jewish world. So this light has gone out to all the people. So when the angels show up to the shepherds and say to the shepherds, behold, this day, born in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be for all people, speaking of the entire planet. Why? Because the people that you work with, your relatives, many of them are living in darkness, and they need the light of Christ. And so Simeon's looking forward in time saying, This this is necessary for the light of this Messiah to come and take away this shroud of darkness. I don't know if you've ever thought of people who are not following Jesus Christ as being literally buried or covered over with a veil. But that's what Scripture talks about. Individuals who are not in fellowship with God, in relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me show you this up on the screen. Isaiah 25.7, speaking of Jesus. He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. So this darkness that the people around us live in, Scripture says is not just people, but entire nations are covered with a shroud. But that covering is taken away by Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.16 But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You see the insight that Simeon has here? This old man knows much about God's plans even before they unfold. So he's speaking of his present generation, but of future generations as well. So verse 33, you can see why Mary and Joseph are so shocked. And his father and mother, verse 33, and his father and mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. They're marveling. This is shocking news for them. 
Mary had the revelation from the angel. Joseph had the revelation from the angel. The shepherds came and told them what the angels had said. But this is the first time they've been together and they've heard this kind of proclamation about the destiny of Jesus. And here's the surprise. It's coming from a complete stranger who has these deep insights into the destiny of their son that what he's coming for is for the entire planet. Uh, Here's where we're going to end today in verse 34 because Simeon makes an abrupt turn. He stops praising God and he begins prophesying. Go with me to verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. The prophecy right there reveals the purpose of Jesus. The baby is barely a month old and already we're told he's going to be the dividing line by which all humanity is separated. The rise and fall of many, what it's speaking of is that Jesus is going to become to everyone a stumbling block or a source of salvation. It's part of God's eternal plan. And God's eternal plan is not easy. It's easy to receive Christ because of the grace of Christ, but it's not easy to get over that stumbling block to make you realize that you need a Savior. Let me help you with this. I want you to see how big of a stumbling block it is for individuals. you have any Christmas parties you're going to this week? You can ask this question to get a party starter going. Okay? The room gets quiet. Perhaps people don't know what to talk about anymore. Just kind of launch it out there into the middle of the room. Who do you think Jesus is? Okay? There's a grenade. (laughs) That will ignite a party. Why? Because Jesus is a stumbling block for individuals. He does represent the rise and the fall. Individuals are divided on this line. There is no neutral ground. There's no gray space. The hearers of the gospel must make a choice about Jesus. And that's what Simeon is speaking about. This one is going to polarize all of humanity, everyone in creation. And so he goes one step further and he says he's also going to be assigned to be opposed. What's he speaking of there? He's speaking of the rejection and the hatred from Israel towards Jesus and the crucifixion. And it's going to cost Jesus the ultimate cost because he's the visible representation of God's eternal plan and everyone's wrath in Israel is going to be poured out on him because of the things that he's saying. He'll be the focus of the hostility of unbelievers To the degree, Mary, that a sword will pierce even your own soul. You're going to watch your son die on the cross in agony. We know from the account in Luke, Mary was right there at the foot of the cross. She watched Jesus die. But here's the eternal purpose, church. Simeon said it himself, verse 35, to the end, see the eternal purpose? To the end, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Everyone's going to be brought to a point of decision. What do you do with Jesus? So implicit within this passage is this. The one who has rejected Jesus is also rejecting God's eternal plan, God's eternal purposes. God's timing is always so perfect. 
Mary and Joseph walking up the steps of the temple. They're just there to present the baby, the firstborn. At the same time, God speaks to one of his chosen servants, Simeon. And at that moment, if you read a little bit further today, you're going to see that an elderly woman joined them. And they began praising God because they realized what's going on here is about eternal destiny, not just about the birth of a baby. Every time I come to a teaching like this, I have to step back and ask myself the same question you should ask. What have I gained from this? What have I learned from this passage? This teaching here has to be showing me something because we just learned, even from Simeon, that the thoughts are revealed on the issue of Jesus. The thoughts of your heart, whatever's going through your head right now, it's being revealed to your mind because Scripture says that your own thoughts reveal what you think of Jesus. So what discovery has it made in your own life? Are you part of those who are going to be part of the rise? Or is he a stumbling block to you? I have to ask myself this second question. What is required for me as a Christ follower to have a heart that's really dialed into God's frequency? I come back to that very beginning question, what do I have to do to be like Simeon? How can I dial into that? Well, first of all, I learned about Simeon that he was someone who was watching for God's activity. He wasn't so consumed with his to-do list. He wasn't so unwilling to be interrupted that he totally missed the God activity. So we've got, first of all, a responsibility to be watching. And the second thing that we have to do is to be responsive. Because when God speaks, we have to respond. So when God's prompting you, you have a responsibility to be responsive. So this is why I asked that question that we started with today. What effect has the arrival of this day on you? It's a very spiritual question. See, Simeon, I'm convinced of this. He never knew when he woke up that morning that God was going to interrupt his day. But at some point, God said, it's time. Simeon, he's here. And Simeon dropped what he's doing, and he went. So what do you do when you believe God is working his eternal plan in your life, and he's carrying out his purposes? Well, if you're like Mary, we learned this two or three weeks ago, you're going to stop, you're going to listen, and you're going to respond. I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. Whatever you want to do with me, do it as you wish. Joseph, he listens, he gets up, He takes Mary, the young pregnant teenage girl, into his home. He responds. Simeon, he listens and he responds to God's activity. Because when God speaks, that is the moment that you respond. When God speaks, that's when you respond. And that applies both to the person who is not yet in relationship with Jesus, but they feel the prompting of God calling them and they've got to do something with it. That's the moment you respond. And for the believer, when you hear God prompting you, telling you to do something, that's the moment that you respond. Here's why I said it seems easier today. It seems really easy to do those two things, to listen and respond. But it requires a willingness to be interrupted. So if you start out your day by saying, God, this is hard, but interrupt me where you want to. Stop my plans in favor of yours. I think you'll be amazed at the God activity in your life. So think that through as you hold those invitation cards this week. 
You come across an individual, you're not sure where they're at in relationship to God, and you think, maybe they would like to experience what I know to be. Get that invitation card out of your purse, out of your pocket, wherever you're going to keep it, and present it to him and say, God, I'm trusting you that this is your activity. Invite God to interrupt your day. You'll be amazed at the conversations that will take place. Let me pray with you right now and ask God to seal these things in our heart, especially this truth that we need to be willing to be interrupted. Would you pray with me? Father, we see it modeled for us in the lives of these individuals that we've looked at over the last three weeks. And I know they had an agenda each day and things that they needed to do. Father, it seems so much harder in our day because we have so much more that we believe we need to get done. In the midst of our world of iPods and iPads and cell phones and capacity to tune out your activity around us, God, I ask that you would help us as a church. All those that were here last night, all those that were here in the 915 service, and for every man and woman and child and student in this auditorium right now, God, I ask It would cause us as a church to be responsive to your activities. God, that's going to require on our part a willingness to be interrupted, and you know that goes against our grain, so that's going to require the work of your Holy Spirit prompting us and making us aware of your activity. Give us that opportunity to respond to you. Father, I, I pray for my church family right now, asking that you'd be with us as we move forward through this week towards Christmas Eve that we would be bold on your behalf to engage individuals in conversation about Jesus. We ask this in the mighty name of our King. Amen. Hope you have an excellent week. I look forward to seeing you on Christmas Eve.